Welcome again to Sundays at Grace. I am Pastor Bill. This is the preaching ministry of Robinson Grace Church in Grand Haven, Michigan. Uh, So glad you've joined us. I'm in part two of a sermon I started last week, The Joy of Letting Go. And we've been talking the last few weeks about this question, what am I holding on to that is holding me back? And then last week got into more specifically, well, how do I let these things go that are hindering me spiritually? And we're going to continue that today. We're looking at four areas of clarity that when we look to Jesus, we, we find the clarity we need to let go. And we're going to see two more areas today of clarity. And I think you'll find this message uh, very uh, helpful and uh, very encouraging. Again, if you go to myrgc.com, you can download handout notes for the message. You can also click on a link there if you would so choose and support the ministry of Robinson Grace Church and help us continually put out these podcasts. We thank you for that. But uh, again, I'm so excited about this message and I can just tell you in this message, we're gonna deal again with something we touched on a, a couple weeks back, the issue of faith in relation to our Christian walk and, and what that looks like. And, and it's a very intriguing concept to understanding faith when it comes to our salvation and when it comes to the race we're running and to our spiritual development. So I think you'll find that really helpful in this message. So let's get right to the message, the joy of letting go part two. Today, of course, is Super Bowl Sunday. And I'm not even sure if I can use that phrase legally, you know, it's like, yeah, what the legal, I was kind of looking at that just for the humor of it, the legality of even using the phrase Super Bowl or Super Bowl Sunday, those are trademarked by the NFL, of course. Is it not fascinating just how big of a deal the big game can really be? Now think about this. In the NFL, uh, there are about 1,700 players that play in the NFL. There's uh, 32 teams, 53 players on a team, about 1,700 players. And today, 106 of those players take the field in what they call the big game, the Super Bowl. And um, it is a big deal. Now think about this. When you think there are approximately 327 million people in just the United States, And out of those 327 million, 106 of the world's best athletes will play today in the Super Bowl. So to get into the Super Bowl, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, you got to be one of the best of the best. Now, when you think about this reality, when you think about Super Bowl Sunday, and you think about these athletes, they're known for their talent and their skill and their good work ethic and their determination. But if there's one thing that really sets the best athletes apart, it's their focus. It takes an incredible focus uh, really, if you're going to play in the NFL, if you're going to play professional sports, an incredible focus, deeply being deeply committed to working out and eating healthy and staying in shape and honing your skills. And there are those that even take that work ethic to the next level. Uh, this past week, the big news, of course, was the passing of Kobe Bryant. He was another uh, superstar athlete. And uh, it's been said of him, people told stories that they would come to the, to the gym at five in the morning and Kobe Bryant would just be leaving after a workout. And so he was someone who is known, he, he really was known for his hard work ethic. He was one of the best ever, but he worked really hard at it. And he had a, a, an incredible focus when it came to playing basketball. Now, these athletes do this to win a championship, to win a title or a trophy. They do it to win bragging rights for a period of time in their prospective sports to be known as the best of the best. But what about us that aren't that talented? What about us that never play in any great notable event? 
What about us that live, uh, about us that live mundane lives, have less than exciting jobs, earn a simple income, raise an average family? What do we really have to look forward to? The thing is, we shouldn't sell ourselves short. You see, we may never play in the Super Bowl. We, we may never win an Oscar or a Grammy or an Emmy. That might not be something we have in our to-do list or even dream about doing. But can I contend that if we are new creations in Christ, we are pursuing an even higher and more notable goal than any of the people that will play today in the Super Bowl. We are in week five of this series here today. 2020 vision, seeing your life through God's eyes. And the goal of this series is all about this verse in Galatians 4.19. My little children, writes Paul, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so the goal uh, that we see here is that Christ would be formed in us. Now we said last week that when we are saved, when we become new creations in Christ, we are set apart. We're sanctified and we're set apart for one primary goal and that is for the formation of Christ. That Christ would be formed in our vessel. And so that's, when you think about the goal of our life, and maybe we're not playing for a Super Bowl today, but we are living a life and we are running a race that has a high, much more higher and notable call, and that's that Christ would actually be formed in my life. Now, it, we think of the goal of this series, we've kind of gotten more specific in the last few weeks, asking specifically where can Christ be formed in my life more fully? Uh, where is that area? Where, what is that trait? Uh, what is it that I can begin to develop within me that would show the world more of Christ? And we'll kind of uh, continue today where we were uh, the last couple of weeks as we continue today. This is part two of this series, um, uh, thinking about the joy of letting go. Two weeks ago, we talked about really the reality, the necessity of letting go. And we asked that big question, what am I holding on to that is holding me back as I run this race, as I'm in this spiritual race? And, and so then last week, it was really, well, how do I let go? What's the joy of letting go and how do I actually let go of these things that have a grip on my life? And we were looking at really four, uh, four areas of clarity that Jesus gives to us to help us understand how we can actually let go of those things that hold us back. Here's our key verse. It's in, it's in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and that great cloud of witnesses are all those individuals, if you go back to Hebrews 11 the great hall of faith, all those individuals that ran the race and they're in heaven and they're watching us run and they're cheering us on, telling us, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. So we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As I said, we saw four areas of clarity. Uh, we saw two last week. We'll see two more this morning. And here's our big idea. Slightly tweaked from last week, but Jesus gives us needed clarity to run the race with the finish line in view. Jesus gives us the clarity. We can run our race with the finish line in view. Let us run with endurance, looking unto Jesus. Let us run with endurance. Let's keep running and keep running with the finish line in view, looking unto Jesus. So now what we did to help us kind of unpack that Hebrews 12 passage, we've been finding uh, another passage here in Philippians chapter 3, very helpful. This is the 
personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. This is him talking about him, him himself running his own race with the finish line in view. And he's running his race. And this helps us kind of flesh out what we're going to talk about. So let's read this again here. A handful of verses here in Philippians chapter 3. And listen to Paul and his testimony again. Here's what he says. But whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Four areas of clarity that Jesus gives to us to help us run the race before us. And last week we saw these two. We saw first that Jesus uh, gives, uh, brings clarity to, the, to living out our identity. He gives us clarity to living out our identity. And then we saw this too. Jesus brings clarity to the burdens that we carry. And we're going to pick it up from there. And here's the third one. Jesus brings clarity to the walk of faith. To the walk of faith. We are told that as believers today, as new creations in Christ, that as we go through this world, as as we traverse through this world, we're walking by faith and not by sight. Here's the key passage in 2 Corinthians 5. And and Paul here is talking again about this reality of being a, a citizen of heaven and yet we reside here on earth in the dichotomy of, of knowing we're citizens of heaven and, and we're going to heaven one day and yet right now we're on earth. And he says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him and so here he says as we walk through this world as we're in this physical fleshly body as we're away from heaven we're not literally in heaven right now like we will be one day as we as we walk through this world we walk by faith and not by faith by sight now here's uh, here's the thing we walk and run our race by faith not by what we see and how we feel And this is harder than we may realize. In fact, can I contend that most of the trouble we get into in this world is when we begin to what? Walk by what we see and how we feel and not by faith. That's really, really, really significantly important. And so we need to understand that it's what God says, what we read in his word, that's walking by faith, not simply by what we see and feel. Here's the reality. 
What happens when we walk by sight? We fixate on our circumstances which overwhelm us. We, we fixate on our relationships which, which disappoint us. We fixate on our sin which shames us. We fixate on our weaknesses which threaten us. But when we walk by faith, when I'm looking to Jesus and Jesus alone, I'm looking to his righteousness and his grace and his mercy and his strength and, oh yes, I'm looking to his faith. I'm looking to find my identity in him. So we are to walk through this world. Now here's the thing. If I'm walking by faith through this world, what happens when my faith is shaken? What happens when my faith is attacked? When, when I feel like my faith is wavering? When, when, my, when my life below me is kind of not feeling like it's very firm ground? Here's the point we made two weeks ago. I am saved by the faith of Christ, not by my own faith in Christ. Remember Galatians 2.20. Very specifically, most modern translations talk about, you know, the faith in Christ, and it's really the faith of Christ. That's how we're saved. And so subsequently, think about this reality-wise, I, I run the race by the faith of Christ, not by my own faith in Christ. And this is something we just really have to kind of wrap our heads around, and it sometimes can be a little bit difficult to comprehend but let me show you again how in the text today this comes out so beautifully okay go back to hebrews chapter 12 look at this and we said this two weeks ago okay i believe in jesus but i don't have the faith of jesus and we're going to see that kind of unpacked for us here again today hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith notice that word our there notice how it's in italics and sometimes they do that in the translation okay this is the, the new king james version and uh, it italicizes our there. And the reason it does is sometimes you'll find this, the word the might be italicized or something. And that's the word that's not really in the Greek. It's not really in the manuscript. It's added to kind of help the, the sentence flow. So it makes a little more sense when you read it. Kind of what they do back in Galatians 2.20 when they say in faith and not of faith. It's kind of like it makes a little more sense when you read it. But you know, sometimes you lose something. Let me, let me show you then. The reality is you could take the word our out of there. And so it would look like this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. In fact, the New American Standard Bible is the one translation that nails this exactly right. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. What does that mean? Well, let me just, let me just give you an, an example here. Let's compare faith with forgiveness for a moment, okay? Let's compare faith with forgiveness. So forgiveness is, is this great relational tool, right? And people use it all the time to fix up their damaged relationships and to restore a relationship with somebody. We employ forgiveness. Now, do you know, though, when was, when was forgiveness uh, introduced into the fabric of our society? When, when was forgiveness really introduced as a concept in the fabric, into the fabric of our society in the world today? Anybody know? It's not hard. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and what did God do? Killed an animal, came and said, I forgive you, and he clothed them so they could have a relationship with him. And it was, yeah, it was, of course, really demonstrated at the cross and the fullness of what forgiveness is. But the reality is, if God had not come and offered forgiveness to Adam and Eve, if God had not showed us what forgiveness is, in our human fallen DNA, we wouldn't have forgiven people. That's not something we would naturally do. We would we would never never thought of forgiveness. But God comes along and teaches us what forgiveness is. And and even those today who don't know Christ as their Savior use forgiveness 
Don't they? They forgive people. They use that tool to help in their own relationships. They don't even know Christ, but they know they've learned forgiveness. It's been ingrained into our society. The point is, faith is, I think, a lot like forgiveness. You can make the case that if God hadn't come along and given us faith, we wouldn't know what faith is. Faith is not something that naturally comes to human. It's something that comes from God, the concept of faith. And so faith, like forgiveness, in the end, faith like forgiveness, they, they originate from God. They, are, they totally, and, and you could almost, I think you could almost make the case that if you don't know Christ, you really can't have genuine forgiveness or genuine faith. Because here's the point. Jesus offers a genuine faith versus taking a risk. I think lots of times the world thinks that they understand that they're, they're stepping out in faith and they're just taking a risk. Let me give you an example of this, going back to Hebrews 11 again. Hebrews 11, one chapter ahead from Hebrews 12. Okay, this is the great hall of faith. And it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are visible. So here's the reality. Notice the definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, genuine faith is this confident hope and it's this unseen conviction. It's kind of like as believers, we have a different definition of hope. It's hope to us is a guarantee. It's not a wish or a dream. It's a guarantee. And faith to us is not just taking a risk. Faith to us is a confident hope. It's an unseen conviction. It's God said it, I believe it. I'm not, I'm not taking a risk. I'm not taking a risk when I believe in what God says in his word. I heard it said one time, maybe you've heard this, that it takes more faith to be an atheist, right, than to be a Christian. It takes more faith to believe in evolution than creation. And, and I think that's a great statement, but you know, I would contend that in reality, atheism doesn't take more faith than being a Christian. Atheism is a risk. <laughs> you're just, let me tell you, if you're an atheist, you're just taking a huge risk. I don't think there's any faith involved in atheism at all. And so the reality is, is that faith, the concept of faith, the idea of faith is something that comes to us from God. We have this confident hope and this, uh, this unseen conviction in what God says and we just believe it. I think that's pretty powerful stuff. Now, what I want you to see here is that what we talked, okay, two weeks ago in Galatians 2.20, right? Paul says, you know, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And I live by the faith, not in the Son of God, but the faith of the Son of God. We made that big point out of the King James how, okay, I want you to know that's not an outlier. So go back to Philippians chapter three and listen to what Paul says here in Philippians three. I never saw this until reading through it. I thought, you know, I'm gonna check this out. And sure enough, same thing. Yea, doubtless, Paul says, I'm reading from the King James now translation. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Verse nine. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Again, every new translation will tell you it's through the faith in Christ. It's not through the faith in Christ. It's through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. So again, understand that as we walk by faith through this world, we're walking by not our faith. We're walking by the faith of Christ. He's the one who has the faith. He's the one who 
believes. Note as well here, it's also his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, not mine. It's both his righteousness, it's both his faith that is involved in saving me. So as we said two weeks ago, Jesus had the faith. He grew up and learned who he was and what his mission was. And he, by faith, believed. He believed his blood would cleanse us. He believed the grave could not hold him. He believed his death could redeem us and his life could save us. Jesus had faith in the redemptive plan, not you and me. Now, again, how do we apply this practically, though? Well, let me give you one story in the scriptures that kind of can maybe help us uh, understand this in a practical sense. So go to Matthew chapter 14. We'll recognize the story. One of the more notable uh, encounters Jesus had when he was doing earthly ministry. Here's what it says. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus sends the disciples off alone. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God of God amazing amazing story there we know the story very well it's been turned into popular worship songs and all sorts of uh, stuff but but here's the thing watch this let's unpack this a moment okay why did Peter walk on the water did Peter see Jesus and Peter say I'm coming to you Jesus and he jumped out of the boat and started walking on the water to Jesus that's not how it happened that's not how it happened, of course. He did not have this great burst of faith and go to Jesus. What then did Peter say? Peter told Jesus to command him to come. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. You see, Peter still doubts if this is really Jesus. So he says to Jesus, command me to come. And Jesus says one word, come. And Peter then proceeds to walk on Jesus. Now, here's a $10,000 question. Who had faith that Peter could walk on the water to Jesus? Who? Jesus. Peter, Peter's not even sure if that's Jesus yet, but he said, well, if it's really Jesus, you command me to come. And, and Jesus commanded him, and, G, and Peter gets out, and Peter begins to walk on the water to Jesus. Peter didn't have the faith to walk on the water. Jesus did. Jesus said, I believe you can walk on the water to me. Come. And so Jesus and Peter, of course, what? He has his eyes fixed on the Lord, fixed on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, and he gives him clarity for the walk of faith. Here's the thing to realize, is that Peter walked on the water when he walked by faith and not by sight. And what, what immediately happens in there is Peter takes a few steps to Jesus. We don't know how many. He maybe gets close to him, but then all of a sudden what happens? He begins to look what? At the wind, or he feels the wind. And he looks at the storm all around him. And he looks at the waves, and all of a sudden he begins to sink. When he stops looking to Jesus... And he starts walking by sight is when he sinks. 
And then he cries out, and of course, Jesus grabs him, and Jesus saves him. And note what Jesus says of Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Jesus, Peter didn't have the faith to walk to Jesus on the water. Jesus had the faith Peter needed, and as long as he looked to Jesus, and again, we just believe in Jesus, we don't have the faith of Jesus. If he says, okay, if he says, I can do it, I can do it. I don't think I can do it, but he says I can do it. And that's the reality. Walking by faith and not by sight is looking to Jesus and hearing him speak and getting your eyes off of your circumstances, off of your problem, off of yourself, off of your resources, off of your surroundings, and just totally on the word of God. What does God say? God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me, as an old song says. Let's stop and get very personal and very applicable a minute. I want you to consider what Jesus said to Peter. I want you to think about this question here. Jesus spoke one word to Peter, come. He said, Peter, come. And Peter got out of the boat and came. So I want you to think about this question right here. Jesus this morning, right now, is saying to me, blank, because he believes I can. Let's just all get very personal. Let's get in our own zeroed space a minute. Let's say, okay, today God is saying to me right now in this season of life, Jesus is saying to me, because I believe you can. Let me, give you a, let me give you a few examples that might help you out. Maybe one of these words will trigger a different word or maybe one of these words will make sense. Jesus is saying to me, come, trust, rest, hope, serve, give, believe, worship, sing, pray, open, love, share, jump, let go, fear not, keep going. How would you fill that blank in for your life this morning? What's he saying to you this morning in your season of life where you're at? Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, come. And you can think about that the rest of the day and the rest of this week and unpack that. What's the one thing God is saying to us today? Come. And he said to Peter, come, because he knew Peter could walk on the water. By 7 p.m. on October 20, 1968, the Mexico City Olympic Stadium, it was beginning to darken. It had cooled down as well. The last of the Olympic marathon runners was, were being assisted away to the first aid stations. Over an hour earlier, Mamo Waldi of Ethiopia had charged across the finish line, winning the 26-mile, 385-yard race, looking as strong and as vigorous as when he'd started. As the last few thousand spectators began preparing to leave, they heard the police sirens and whistles through the gate entering the stadium. The attention turned to the gate. A sole figure wearing the colors of Tanzania came limping into the stadium. His name was John Stephen Aquari. He was the last man to finish the marathon in 1968. His leg was bandaged, bloodied. He had taken a bad fall early in the race. Now it was all he could do to limp his way around the track. The crowd stood and applauded as he completed the last lap. When he finally crossed the finish line, one man dared ask the question all were wondering, you are badly injured, why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? Akawari, with quiet dignity, said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start this race. My country sent me to finish. And so it is with God God didn't just send you to start this race. He didn't just send you to begin a noble task or a noble relationship. God sent you both to start and to finish the race. And, and one thing God is saying to us all this morning is, yes, you can. Keep going. You can do it. 
you can reach the finish line. You can continue on in the race, and I have all the faith you'll need to keep racing and keep running. Let's look at one fourth area of clarity then, and it's this. Jesus brings clarity to the race we run. Jesus brings clarity to the race we run. We're in this race, and we all have our own unique race, and there is a race, the King James says, there's a course marked out for us. There is a specific race we are called to run. And Jesus brings clarity to that race. Now, let me say up front what this doesn't mean. That doesn't mean we're literally running through life. Jesus in three and a half years of ministry, nowhere in the Gospels do you see Jesus running here and then running there and then running there. Come on, guys, we got to run to Nazareth. Okay, guys, we got to run over here. Okay, we got to run over here. And that's not the way Jesus did ministry. He didn't wear himself out running all over the place. So that's not what it means when it talks about running a race. But it talks about we're in this contest, this race, this marathon, and we're going to be running through our, our entire life. And so it is a marathon, and we pace ourselves and we understand what that means. Here are a handful of insights, though, that when we look to Jesus, we can get that will help us understand what it means to be running this race. We start in Philippians 3.12. He says, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or are already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so running the race means we are running forward in pursuit of something. We are not running from something. Just know that today. You are running forward. You are running forward in pursuit of something. You are not running from something. You're running forward to realize more of your identity in Christ, for more of Christ to be formed in your life. You're running, and in the process of running, Christ is being formed within your life. And, and we just know that we're running forward in pursuit of something. Notice that Paul is running forward. His eyes are fixed on Jesus' hope. He's not running from his fear, from his past, from his pain, from his doubt, from his sin, from his enemy. No, he's not. In fact, the reality is, we, we just understand that he's not running from his past. He's let go of his past. So he's not running from it. We see this in verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And three times here, Paul uses that word loss and he just communicates to us, so we see it in verse 8 here, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's what running the race shows us is that we are, we are running free. We're not just running forward, we're running free, having let go of all burdens or distractions. As I said, Paul's not running from his past, he's let go of his past the word loss here uses it three times and the idea the first two times is really you could think of that word detrimental if you thought about it that word detrimental he's he's considering a loss anything that is detrimental to the race that he is running i've counted all things as lost i've determined i've determined in my life what is detrimental to the race i'm running and i then in verse 8 i have forfeited those things i have i have I have let go of those things that I count detrimental. Kind of like what we said. It's another way to say what we've said the last two weeks, right? 
Is there anything I'm holding on to that is holding me back? And so I determine what am I holding on to that I need to let go of, and then I actually let go of it. In a separate, deliberate decision, I let go of it. And that's what Paul's doing here. I consider these things a loss. I consider these things a detriment to the race I'm running. And then I willingly choose to let those things go that are a detriment. Another way to ask that same question then, is there anything in your life that is detrimental to you to running your race more successfully and to Christ being formed in you more fully? Is there anything in your life that is detrimental to that? Is there anything that is detrimental to you moving forward spiritually? And Paul identified those things in his own life and Paul let them go again any distractions that get our eyes off of jesus would be detrimental to my christian life third we are running focused we're running forward we're running free we're running focused with our eyes fixed on the prize which is of course christ here's what he says philippians 3 8 again indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And down in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I have been making this point as long as I've been in the ministry when you think about this passage here and other passages that that talk about running the race and a prize, that the, the prize is Christ. The prize is not eternal life. We have people today in the world, very rich people trying to come up with Something that will bring immortality, right? Some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of drug or some kind of something way to alter our genes to bring about immortality. I can tell you right now, I wouldn't want to be immortal in this body. I don't know about you. I would not want to be immortal in this body and in this broken down world. I'm not ready to leave yet. But that's because I know one day I will leave and I'll get to go to heaven. And in heaven, it's not going to be this world. It's not going to be this broken down, fallen, you know, evil place. And so we know that eternal life is not the prize and heaven is not the prize. What if you got to heaven and Christ wasn't there? Then heaven wouldn't really be heaven, would it? We look forward to going to heaven one day because Christ will be there. The glory of Christ. He is the prize. Now, we have this thing, we understand this thing, right, traditionally in Christianity that we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved for our good works, right? And we're doing good works to earn a reward, right? We, we understand that pretty much. And then uh, there's really two kind of ways, and, and I know I've made this point probably many times over the years. And uh, one way that we look at our rewards is like they're precious jewels, like everything we do in this world is kind of put into this fire and it's... It's burned and it's wood, hay and stubble and it's burned up and it's worthless or if not, it's precious stones and jewels and then that's my reward and so I go into heaven with these precious jewels and these precious stones. Another way we often equate it sometimes is we talk about investing in heaven. Like all our good works and good deeds, we're like investing and someday we'll get to go to heaven and, and we'll, we'll have invested more in heaven and so when I, build, when I build my mansion in heaven, I'll build a bigger mansion than some people because I invested more into heaven. And so the more we invest into heaven, the greater the mansion can be. And I got to thinking about this whole reality of rewards and I thought of this illustration. Let's just say that, let's just say that you wanted to get an idea 
of what your rewards were going to look like in heaven someday, even here on earth. You wanted to know kind of, hey, what am I accumulating in heaven as far as rewards go? And so God set up this big warehouse somewhere in the United States, and you could travel there, and you could go to this warehouse, and you could actually see your pile of jewelry or what you had invested and what you were looking forward to in heaven. And so you, you opted to go and you drive, you know, maybe it's over in Indiana or something, and you drive eight hours over there and you go to this big warehouse and you pull into the warehouse and you're greeted at the front door and you're, yeah, yeah, they, they say, okay, yeah, you're on the list and yeah, you've got rewards and you walk into this big, glorious building, you know, it's really big and, and then they give you a, an aisle number and then they tell you exactly where you can find your reward. And you're all excited to see, wow, what, I want, what, I, what, I, what can I look forward to in heaven? What have I earned? And, and as you walk into this door, you realize this room, is just, this room is just filled with this incredible light. It's just this warm, glowing, all-consuming light. And the reality is, is that Jesus is actually there in that very room where your rewards are. And you walk into that room and you are just blown away by this light. And it's so consuming. And it just so is so enthralling. And, and so you're there about three or four hours. And your time's up and you have to leave. And you head back for home. And you get home and one of your friends calls you and says, Did you go and check on your rewards? And, and, and did you go and find out what your rewards are? And yeah, I went. I went into the thing and they gave me this aisle number. And I walked in. And did you see your rewards? And you're like, yeah, I saw my rewards. Did you get it? It's like, maybe I didn't check out the aisle. Maybe, you know, I don't know what rewards look like in heaven. We sometimes think our rewards in heaven is we're earning these jewels or we're earning enough stuff to build a nice mat. We think, let me tell you what the reward's going to be in heaven. The prize, the ultimate reward is going to be Christ. And he's going to be so consuming that, I don't know. I think we can tend, sometimes lose sight of the ultimate reward and the ultimate reward simply is Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In fact, think about what else he says. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And Paul is like Paul is pursuing Christ as much as Christ pursued him. He can't really pursue him as much as Christ pursued him. But that's kind of the standard. It's like Look how far Christ came to pursue me and I am pursuing him with all that I have. He is my reward. He is my prize. He is everything that I'm looking for at the end of the race. And then running the race means this. Look at Hebrews 12, 1. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And finally, we are running filled with the strength we need to endure. We are running filled with the strength we need so as to endure the race. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's this endurance. And we're running filled with the endurance we need to make it to the finish line, to complete the race that we're in. It's an amazing race. And we're, we can't wait for the end of the finish line. We can't wait to get to the end of the finish line. If I could share this question. Where, when you pray, where do you look? When you pray, where do you look? Think about that for a minute. We, we bow our eyes and we, we close our eyes and bow our head and we pray. Where are we looking? Well, there's a couple places we could look. We could look up, right? Right, we look up, we're praying, you know. Can I contend that, and I heard somebody ask this question this week, so I thought this was a pretty, pretty cool question. But how about this, when we pray, if the first place we looked, what if we 
looked in to find our inner strength in Christ. What I mean by that is when we go to pray and we, we go to talk to God, what if we talked and realized that the person we're praying to is right here? He's not off in some distant galaxy. He's right here. That's how close he is. And I'm praying to him right here. And he is the strength. He's the endurance I need to run this race, to, to carry on, to persevere. He's, my faith is right here. The faith of Christ is right here. The endurance of Christ is right here. The strength of Christ. So when we pray, we look in to find our inner strength in Christ. And we locate Christ within us and we realize how close Jesus is and that he is my life and he is my strength and he is my portion. He is my praise. But then at the same time, when we look in, we can also look up. Now how does that work? How can I look in and look up at the same time? How can I look in and look up at the same time? Well, look at this verse in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what? Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So I look in and I find Christ in me and I find my, my inner strength is Christ and faith is Christ in me and endurance is Christ in me. It's right here. And yet I look up and I locate myself in Christ because he's in me and I'm in him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of God. And I'm in him. And I'm in him. I'm over my circumstances. I'm over all the, the problems, over all the issues in my life. I am over them in Christ. And yet I'm down here, I'm, I'm away from heaven, I'm, uh, I'm, away, I'm in this body here on the world, in the earth, and I'm walking by faith, not by sight, and Christ is in me, and somehow that all can be added up together. Here's one other verse, I can leave you with one other verse here, Colossians 1.9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That we can, we can run with endurance. We can pray. That we would have the endurance to complete the race. We, we run with the finish line in perspective. Here's our big idea. Jesus gives us needed clarity to run the race with a finish line in view. Let us run with endurance looking unto Jesus. And we run the race and there's the finish line and we're running forward in pursuit of something not running from something. So what we learned today, that Jesus brings clarity to the walk of faith, that it's his faith that believes I can do and be all that he believes I can do and be. And then there is, of course, he brings clarity to the race that we run. Let's look at these two questions here. What one word is God speaking to you at this time? What would it look like if you got out of your boat this morning? That's kind of the synopsis there. What's the one word God is speaking to you at this season of your life? What would it look like if you got out of your boat and you trusted in Jesus, in the faith of Jesus, in what he said about you? What would that look like in your life? 
And then in which of the four ways identified can Jesus bring clarity to your race this week? Running forward, running free, running filled. What, of those four ways, you know, which way identified can Jesus bring clarity to your race this week? Let me leave you with one last closing observation here when you think about this race that we're running then. Ultimately, where we're running, look at these two verses at the very end of, of Philippians chapter 3. Here's what it says. Paul says, our citizenship, much like what he said in Corinthians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so just know this, that as we run the race, here's one last issue of clarity, I guess we could say. We are running home. We're in this race, and we are running home into the arms of our loving Father, who is standing there, arms outstretched, ready to embrace us. We're running home. Isn't that great to know? Isn't that awesome to know? Jesus brings clarity so we can run the race with the finish line in view. Well, hey, if I can add just a bit of clarity to the end of my own message, we talk about running home, running into the arms of a loving father. This, of course, is contingent on the fact that we have indeed looked unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, and that we have looked to him for our salvation, that we have put our faith and trust in him. And, uh, that's called responding to the gospel, the good news, looking to Jesus and the cross. And really there's two general, two basic responses to the cross. One is to believe. We believe that, yeah, we, we have been separated from a holy God by our sin and by our wrongdoing. And we believe that Jesus Christ is God. He's the son of God who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be made at peace with God. He came to redeem us and to rescue us and to reconcile us to a holy God that we had been separated from. So we believe and then we simply receive. We don't just believe it in our head, we receive it in our heart and we say, yeah, I want Christ to come and live in me. I want Christ to come and be my life I receive his forgiveness. I receive his life. I receive his mercy and his grace. And yes, I receive his faith. And so as we come to the end of the message today, it's my prayer that you have put your faith and trust in Christ. And let me just say again, that doesn't mean you have to understand every deep reality of the gospel in its simplest form. You simply have to believe that Jesus believed. And Jesus believed the Father loved you. And Jesus believed his death could redeem you. And Jesus believed his life could save you.